A warning. This episode features discussions of drug abuse, gun violence, and suicide that some listeners may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. High school art teacher Patty Nielsen flipped through a book in the hall around 11.20 a.m., a quick, peaceful moment amidst the chaos of lunch monitor duty. Her kids were good kids. This was a good school. But lunch was lunch. Perhaps that's why, when she heard a strange pop coming from outside on the school's front steps, she wasn't overly alarmed. Peering through the glass doors, Patty saw a student dressed in black. He was waving something around in the direction of the parking lot. It looked like a gun, but that couldn't be it. She glanced at a junior standing nearby, Brian Anderson, and asked if he knew what was going on out there. Anderson shrugged, suggesting, probably a cap gun. It's probably for video productions. The theory made sense, but that did not excuse the disruption. Patty strode towards the glass doors, and Brian followed, ready to watch her lay down the law. But just as they arrived at the second set of doors, the young man in black turned around. He smiled, then he pointed the gun at them. The glass door shattered. That was no cap gun. Patty turned to Brian, horrified, just in time to see his back arch and his body drop. The Columbine High School massacre had begun. Before it was over, 15 people would be dead. 14 of them were teenagers. The 1990s were almost over, but the trauma would last these teens a lifetime. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our 10th and last episode on the dark side of the 90s. As every decade brings new challenges, a rosy tint has started to color these bygone years. But all this nostalgia obscures the more unpleasant bits of 90s history. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Last week, we talked about Beanie Babies, the cute toys that adult greed turned into a multi-million dollar obsession. Today, we're closing out the season by looking at perhaps the 1990s biggest legacy of all, its teenagers. They came of age during a decade that's a lot less charmed than we'd like to remember, as our past nine episodes have illustrated. That made for a difficult, sometimes tortured adolescence. If you look closely, the clues are there even under the bubbly irony of Clueless. But by the time you get to Columbine, there's no need to squint. Coming up, the teenagers that the 1990s chewed up and spit out. 
there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1980s, John Hughes movies reigned supreme as the ultimate documents of teen culture. These comedies were positive, upbeat portrayals of suburban teen life. They didn't pretend that everything was perfect. In The Breakfast Club, the kids bond over their shared traumas and difficult life circumstances. But the key here is that their difficulties are a path towards connection, as far as the film is concerned. Plus, the problems in these stories are generally kept to a distinctly teen world, where teenage solutions are enough to sort things out. Meaning, the issues feel finite. Our characters will leave them all behind once that final school bell rings and senior year is up. Adolescence can be difficult, Hughes admits, but he promises that it'll be nostalgic soon enough. By the 1990s, teen media wasn't so sure. Take Clueless, the 1990s answer to teen comedy. Like Hughes's films, it follows a cast of mostly high school kids, and young love is a central issue. But there are less wholesome undertones. Cher, the heroine, is sexually harassed by a classmate and robbed at gunpoint in a parking lot. Her love interest, the son of her father's ex-wife, is in college, expanding the social scene of the story beyond high school's walls. And close-ups of a teenage partier vomiting into a pool hint at the gross underbelly of high school life. This is all presented with a light, humorous tone. Cher famously cries out that her dress is an aliyah, and she can't just lay down on the dirty concrete, all while a gun is pointed at her head. But the humor here draws on the irony of that response. Cher's situation is actually terrifying. That kind of irony is a central feature throughout the film. In general, the ironic, tongue-in-cheek high school comedy genre of the 1990s was likely a response to changes in youth culture that hit the mainstream a few years before. It all started in the northwest of the U.S., in the mid-80s. Young people, mostly around the Seattle area, were experimenting with a new kind of music. They were mixing the sounds of heavy metal and punk rock in the context of lo-fi DIY production and creating something all their own. The ethos of the scene surrounding this music was anti-establishment and anti-capitalist, with a tendency towards anarchy. The scenesters saw the darkness of mainstream society's materialistic conformism, and they rejected it. That was evident from the music they made, from the first heavy, aggressive bang of percussion. It was also evident in their style, more inspired by lumberjacks and secondhand dollar racks than New York Fashion Week. Perhaps that's how their movement got its name, grunge. The word itself denotes dirtiness and something or someone that is distasteful and unacceptable. 
But the musicians and scenesters disagreed with mainstream capitalist values, and if society saw them as distasteful, that was society's problem. Grunge teens were proud to be outsiders. Ironically, however, grunge's outsider message actually became mainstream. It all started in the early 1990s on the stages of Seattle's concert halls. The room was dark, the stage setup sparse. The three young men performing weren't putting on dramatic theatrics. Their faces were all hidden by long, stringy locks of hair. The drummer was shirtless, but otherwise their getups were nondescript. The blonde frontman was wearing a cozy, oversized V-neck sweater as he crooned a song called Smells Like Teen Spirit. Some of the lyrics included, With the lights out, it's less dangerous. Here we are now, entertain us. I feel stupid and contagious. All very grunge sentiments. But what made this performance different from most grunge shows was the stage. It was a big one. Even more unusual was the size of the audience. The concert hall was chock full of teens, yelling out the lyrics alongside blonde frontman Kurt Cobain. And not just in Seattle. The scene repeated itself all across America and internationally, too. The band these teens were screaming for? Nirvana. Like most Seattle-area grunge bands, Nirvana started out with a stint at the local label Sub Pop. Despite their first 1989 album Bleach selling poorly, they leveled up to a major record label, DGC Records, in 1990. Their second album, 1991's Nevermind, blew up. By blew up, we mean knocked Michael Jackson off the top of the charts big. By Christmas 1991, Nevermind was selling approximately 400,000 copies a week in the U.S. To this day, it remains one of the best-selling albums of all time. Some of the band's success can be attributed to Kurt Cobain's blue eyes and strong jaw. But his thin, unassuming frame and baggy thrift store clothes were a far cry from the trappings of your typical teen heartthrob. Meanwhile, Nirvana's sound was certainly in the tradition of grunge, which until then had remained a relatively fringe subculture. Many commentators felt the only explanation for the band's out-of-nowhere success was that Nirvana calibrated grunge at exactly the right frequency at exactly the right time. The band was speaking the language of 90s teens while their predecessors had been railing in vain at 80s kids. Kurt Cobain was the spokesperson of a generation, a new generation. The cover art on Nevermind is a prime example of what exactly Cobain was saying. It shows a baby swimming underwater, reaching for a dollar bill caught on a fishing hook just out of reach. In other words, the American promise of eternal growth, fiscal and otherwise, is a scam. That dollar bill, that happy ending, is bait. It will always be just out of reach. It's a classic grunge take. But the success of Nirvana indicated that their message resonated with 90s teens much more than grunge had with mainstream 80s teens. 90s kids were seeing the greed, the obsession, 
the exploitation and the dangerously unequal distributions of power that characterized their parents' booming economy. Everything we've covered over the course of this season, they were living through it. They were aware of it, and they didn't like it. Nirvana gave those frustrations a voice, a sound, and a representative. It's notable, however, that Cobain wasn't thrilled with his designated title of spokesman for a generation. As he put it, I'm a spokesman for myself. It just so happens that there's a bunch of people that are concerned with what I have to say. I find that frightening at times because I'm just as confused as most people. I don't have the answers for anything. I don't want to be a spokesperson. After all, spokesperson implies a monolithic youth culture, an establishment with a leader. That's exactly what grunge was not, what it was always against. And according to Butch Vig, the producer of Nevermind, part of what Nirvana fans loved was exactly that unprescriptive, anti-hierarchical message. That ambiguity, that's the whole thing. What the kids are attracted to in the music is the passion and the fact that Cobain doesn't necessarily know what he wants, but he's pissed. Nirvana's sense of anger and rejection without a clear message of what better might look like might have been part of its appeal. But this lack of solutions may also have been critical to its downfall. Without clear goals for the mainstream movement around grunge, Nirvana's fans were just that, fans emulating and singing along with Cobain. When Cobain fell prey to grunge's own internal darkness, the righteous anger of those fans was left without an outlet or a direction. At least until corporations stepped in to give it one. Coming up, Nirvana falls prey to heroin and 90s teens to heroin chic. Hi, it's Richard. Ready to hear about my new favorite Spotify original from Parcast? It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, she'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, JFK, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. 90s teenagers had found an art form that perfectly expressed their frustrations with the hypocrisy of American materialism, grunge music. But grunge had its own problems, namely heroin. Seattle, the movement's nucleus, was considered Washington's heroin capital. 
Courtney Love, the lead singer of the band Hole, and Kurt Cobain's wife explained, everybody was doing it, everyone. Everyone, all our friends were junkies. It was ridiculous. Everybody in this town did dope. This aspect of the scene came out into the open in 1994, just a few years after Nirvana made it big. That year, 27-year-old Kurt Cobain died of suicide. He had heroin in his bloodstream. Prior to his death, Cobain had actually spoken against drug use. As he put it in a 1992 interview with Rolling Stone, all drugs are a waste of time. They destroy your memory and your self-respect and everything that goes along with your self-esteem. They're no good at all. But this public statement was a farce. Cobain struggled with chronic bronchitis, an undiagnosed chronic stomach condition, and depression. He'd been a cannabis user since he was a teenager and regularly abused prescription drugs as a way to self-medicate. According to Nirvana bassist Chris Novoselic, Cobain was really into getting effed up. Drugs, acid, any kind of drug. Cobain's death brought issues around addiction to the front and center of the mainstream press. This could have been a helpful, productive conversation for a country that was experiencing marked increases in prescription drug abuse. Heroin addiction itself, outside of the grunge scene, was just a burgeoning mainstream issue at the time, and serious conversations about the drug could have helped keep levels low. Unfortunately, that's not how the reactions to Cobain's death played out. There were a host of conversations about the 27 Club, the phenomena of remarkably talented musicians dying at the age of 27. Even Cobain's mother chimed in, famously telling reporters, now he's gone and joined that stupid club. Then there were the theories that Cobain had been murdered, according to some by his own wife, whole frontwoman Courtney Love. She was also blamed for getting him hooked on heroin in the first place. A 1992 interview with the couple accused Love of using heroin during her pregnancy, and Love has stated that the media attention contributed to Cobain's mental instability and her own struggles with addiction. Ultimately, the conspiracies were a distraction, and the mainstream media failed to productively examine drug abuse and mental health following Cobain's death. What teens were left with was a Cobain-sized hole in their lives, one they were desperate to fill with whatever would bring them closer to their lost hero. They were already imitating Cobain even before his death. Teens across America had adopted grungy fashion choices, worn flannels, combat boots, stringy hair poking out from under knit ski hats. Corporations had already taken note. They started selling overpriced pre-worn in flannels, ripped jeans. They even branded hair gel as grunge, all at a delectable profit. But after Cobain's death, many teens wanted to get even closer to him. In this context, perhaps it's not surprising that the fashion industry started to commodify another element of the Seattle grunge look. The stick-thin, dark-circled heroin user, or as it was alarmingly dubbed, heroin chic. 
80s supermodels had skyrocketed to fame thanks to their glowing, relatively healthy looks. But by the mid-90s, that had changed. Kate Moss was the biggest model on the scene, and she was beloved by the fashion industry for her pale skin, dark circles, and ultra-slender frame. As one commentator put it, the look du jour was a nihilistic vision of beauty that mirrored the wasted silhouettes and pinched faces of drug addicts. And once the fashion industry had staked their claim on heroin chic, it wasn't only grunge kids who wanted to look like Cobain, it was every teen. Between 1992 and 1997, recreational drug use amongst high school students ballooned, climbing from 27.1% to 42.4% amongst seniors. Meanwhile, the incidence of eating disorders rose amongst teenage girls and boys alike. Even for teens who weren't struggling with an eating disorder, dieting was the name of the game. Cher, the straight-laced heroine of 1995's Clueless, was dedicated to keeping thin, working out constantly, and carefully watching what she ate. As she put it at one point in the film, I feel like such a heifer. I had two bowls of Special K, three pieces of turkey bacon, a handful of popcorn, five peanut butter M&Ms, and like three pieces of licorice. Of course, dieting was nothing new to American women or even teenage girls. But in the era of Kate Moss, the desired look had changed from slender to something even less healthy. Now the goal was waif, as in an unhealthy child. The grunge aesthetic had been completely commodified, and in the process, it had become poisonous. Meanwhile, grunge music faded out of the mainstream. In the wake of Cobain's death and other drug-related losses in the Seattle scene and beyond, bands were struggling to keep body and soul in one piece, much less put out an album. All that was left of grunge, at least on the national stage, was heroin chic. So teens did what the corporations begged them to. They embraced it. When 19-year-old Fiona Apple released her debut album, Title in 1996, she seemed poised to profit off images of druggy kids, just like the corporations. The video for her 1997 song, Criminal, featured her stick-thin body writhing around on the floor, surrounded by what appeared to be mostly passed-out teens. The bags under her eyes were enormous. The reference to 90s youth culture and voyeurism couldn't have been clearer. Teens watching the video play and replay on MTV understood that reference. After all, they'd just watched some of their favorite stars experience the most destructive kinds of fame. But Fiona Apple wasn't a corporate product. And when she won Best Female Video at the 1997 Video Music Awards, she proved that. She went on stage to claim her award and made the following statement. I didn't prepare a speech, but I'm glad that I didn't because I'm not going to do this like everybody else. What I want to say is, you shouldn't model your life about what you think that we think is cool and what we're wearing and what we're saying. Go with yourself. Go with yourself. This was real grunge energy, not its corporate stand-in. 
a return to the original grunge ethos that said, be yourself, fight against norms, and don't look for a spokesperson. Unfortunately, this didn't go too well for Fiona Apple. New York rock writer Otto Luck called it one of the most ridiculous soliloquies ever to be witnessed at an MTV Awards event. Other critics were equally harsh. They panned Apple as bratty and self-important. They even called her a hypocrite. Here she was profiting off the music industry and playing into the aesthetic of heroin chic just as much as the next waif on MTV. She should be thankful for the support of the industry. And if she wasn't, well, she could easily be shut out. That's not to say her career was ruined. In the process of returning to grunge roots, she became a hero for many young people. If there was an initial whiff of hypocrisy around her speech, fans didn't care, especially when Apple stood by her statement despite the backlash. She never apologized. Many young people saw a real grunge rebel in her. They were moved by her message of independence. Still, the negative press that followed Apple's VMA's speech was telling. Mainstream society didn't want another Cobain. It wanted to get back to the days when teens fell into line, bought what the corporation sold to them, and listened to their parents. Unfortunately, whatever John Hughes' 80s normal they were thinking of, the 90s had scrapped that possibility. As the decade came to a close, an appalling new normal reared its ugly head. The bloody parting gift of an already difficult decade rocked the nation and devastated its adolescence. Coming up, Colorado's Columbine High School is the site of a massacre. Now, back to the story. In the mid-1990s, Seattle-based grunge was succeeded by the heroin-chic grunge aesthetic. Many parents seemed to prefer it that way. At least it was just a look, even if it glorified some of the worst parts of the grunge movement. Kids could diet a bit, buy an overpriced flannel, and still respect their parents' views on progress, professionalism, and the importance of old-fashioned American values. But no amount of corporatized grunge could bring back those happy days of John Hughes' Breakfast Club, especially not after April 20th, 1999. The morning dawned like any other spring day in Columbine, Colorado. Kids packed up their backpacks. Parents hustled them out the door. Teens were gobbling down Pop-Tarts as they scrambled across the lawn, hoping they'd make it to Columbine High School before the first morning bell rang. Sophomore Craig Scott and his sister Rachel, a junior, had a quick squabble on the ride to school. When they finally arrived, Craig hopped out and slammed his door. Then he ran for the glass doors of the main Columbine building. The first few classes of the day were typical. Craig's teachers rushed through their curriculum, aware of the impending summer break. By 11.20 a.m., Craig was in the library, along with many of his fellow students. Then, they heard a strange popping sound coming from outside. At first, they assumed it was a senior prank. Could be someone setting off firecrackers. That might be fun. Just then, a teacher ran into the room. She was frantic and screaming. 
There were two students outside with guns. They were shooting at other students. Everyone had to hide. Now. After a moment of tense confusion, Craig and all the other kids in the room dove under tables and into out-of-the-way corners. Two Columbine seniors dressed in black trench coats swept into the library. One carried a shotgun, the other a semi-automatic. But the boys didn't start by shooting. First, they mocked their classmates. In terrified horror, Craig realized this was a game. When the shooters said, anybody with a white hat or a sports emblem on it is dead, Craig pulled the cap off his head and tucked it under his shirt. Then he prayed. Because the boys weren't just joking around. After they taunted each of their victims, they shot. This went on for what felt like an eternity. In actuality, by 12.08 p.m., less than an hour after the violence began, both shooters had killed themselves. Craig survived uninjured, but 21 others had been shot and wounded, and 12 of his classmates and one teacher were dead. Amongst those killed was Craig's sister, Rachel, who he'd last seen on the wrong side of a slammed car door. The Columbine High School massacre rocked Colorado and the nation. There had been shootings by students in American schools before, but to many, Columbine felt like something else entirely. More than anything, the nation and the survivors wanted to know why this had happened. Why had these kids died? Why had two high school students turned murder into a game? But the perpetrators were dead, just like their victims. It was up to the living to piece together some answers. Investigators turned to the information left behind by the shooters, Columbine seniors Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. They began by logging on to an AOL website Harris had started back in 1996. The site, which functioned in part as a blog, seemed to document fairly normal teenage behavior and thoughts at first. But beginning in early 1997, there was a shift in Harris's tone. He started posting angry, sometimes violent frustrations. For example, you know what I hate? When there is a group standing in the middle of a hallway or walkway, and they are just standing there talking and blocking my way. Get out of the way or I'll bring a friggin' sawed-off shotgun to your house and blow your snotty head off. By the end of 1997, the blog contained instructions for how to make a bomb. And by 1998, the threats had gotten even more specific. One read, All I want to do is kill and injure as many of you as I can, especially a few people, like Brooks Brown. Brooks Brown was another student at Columbine. Mentioning his name had drawn some initial attention to Harris's blog back in 1998. Brown's parents brought the site to police, where an investigator wrote up an affidavit on the site's alarming contents. But that affidavit was never submitted to a judge, and Harris's behavior went unchecked. Investigators would also find journals by both Harris and Dylan Klebold. They contained detailed plans for the massacre, 
and plenty of evidence of violent impulses. In retrospect, similar interests were even clear in the teenager's schoolwork. They chose to research Nazis and Charles Manson. All of this painted a heartbreaking picture of missed opportunities for intervention. But still, none of these findings indicated a clear motive. The FBI ultimately concluded that there wasn't one, not insofar as a motive implies a rational goal. They chalked the massacre up to mental illness. According to their psychological profiles of the teenagers, Eric Harris was a psychopath and Dylan Klebold a depressive. As the supervisor in charge of the investigation would put it, I believe Eric went to the school to kill and didn't care if he died, while Dylan wanted to die and didn't care if others died as well. The FBI's conclusions gave a shattered nation something to work with as every headline across America grappled with the tragedy. At least they knew what kind of teens might be prone to this kind of violence. But for many, it wasn't enough. There were plenty of depressed teens who weren't murdering anyone. There were even psychopaths that abstained from killing. What was different here? Several popular theories emerged. One centered around the fact that according to some of their classmates, both shooters were mercilessly bullied at Columbine. They were called gay slurs and had food thrown at them. In general, they were social outcasts. It was speculated that perhaps this bullying combined with mental illness had led to the devastating massacre. Other theories centered around glorified violence in 90s culture. Accusations were thrown at everything from musician Marilyn Manson, whose band featured lyrics about violence and violent impulses, to video game manufacturers. Harris had been an avid fan of first-person shooter games. These theories led to a veritable panic amongst parents as the decade wound to a close. They were starting to look back on the 90s and wonder, what had become of America? Had they failed their kids? Unfortunately, the nation's frenetic fear and concern didn't materialize into a clear prevention plan. Parents of some of the victims filed lawsuits against video game manufacturers, but these suits were unsuccessful. On April 29th, 10 senators requested that Interscope Records stop distributing music that glorified violence, namely the music of Marilyn Manson. Likely as a result, Manson did cancel his upcoming tour dates, but he also published an incisive response to the senators in Rolling Stone magazine, it was titled, Columbine, Whose Fault Is It? In the article, Manson drew attention to a much more concrete, actionable facilitator of Columbine than the amorphous idea of violence in the culture. That is, America's gun culture and loose gun laws. If those mentally ill teenage boys hadn't been told by the NRA that real-life guns were a fabulous toy, and hadn't been able to get their hands on real guns as minors, then Columbine would have never happened, regardless of what video games Harris was playing. Manson's points resonated across America, and the government did respond with some minor reform to gun control law. But the gun control lobby pushed back, and as the decades since have shown, 
gun control has continued to be a never-ending controversy. One that gets a heart-wrenching boost every time there's a new school shooting, meaning often. Instead of marking a tragic and shameful outlier in American history, Columbine became a model for a host of other school shooters. As of April 2019, there have been over 240 school shootings since April 20th, 1999, not including shootings at colleges and universities. If guns have stayed as part of American culture, school shootings have become just as much as a part of that culture. That's a sour inheritance for 1990s teenagers. They were the ones who had to live through the trauma of Columbine most directly. The ones who had to go back to school in the aftermath of the massacre, cautiously peering around every door before entering. School for many of them became an atmosphere of fear rather than a place to learn and grow. And yet the adults, the people who were supposed to protect their children, failed to enact meaningful change. They left their teenagers to struggle with making that change themselves as they graduated into adulthood in the new millennium. Not to say 90s teens had it all bad. Like any decade's teenagers, they experienced the ups as well as the downs of adolescence. And they did benefit from a booming economy, whatever they may have thought of it. The decade also marked the production of some of the best teen media to date, including landmark shows like My So-Called Life and Freaks and Geeks, both of which explored the trials and tribulations of teen life from a relatable perspective. But the fact that racism in high schools made it onto the little screen didn't nullify that racism. The fact that teens were able to see adolescent sex, drinking, and homelessness on TV didn't make the traumas of their own lives disappear. We've heard too much about the dark arteries of the 1990s to leave this season on a happy note. Every facet of the decade had a dark side, from its chat rooms, to its idols, to the food on its dinner tables. And no one was more inundated in that darkness than 90s teens. They had no prior frame of reference. They simply came of age in a very confusing time. So next time you find yourself clicking on a meme that only 90s kids will understand, take its nostalgia with a grain of salt. Or as the 90s would have it, a grain of sarcasm. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. We'll be back next week with a brand new season. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard, 
and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Richard, and I'm back to remind you to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking blackmail schemes, and even murder. I think you're really going to get a kick out of it. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.